Morning, everybody. What do you think fashion show? Not bad, is it? Yeah. Has anyone ever seen the um, programme Before They Were Famous? Uh, it's, not that good, it's not that good a programme, actually. But uh, there's some interesting things in it. There's a marginally interesting one about Brad Pitt and the fact that he used to dress up in a chicken suit before he was famous. But there's a more interesting one about Fido Castro. Fidel Castro, who was a baseball player, did you know that? And then a lawyer, and then in prison, then in exile, then he took over his country. And uh, another interesting one is Michael Dell. You know the guy who founded Dell Computers? You might have one. Um, Learned everything that he did about business practice in a Chinese restaurant. How about that? Anyway, um, the interesting thing is God had his own collection of uh, Before They Were Famous stories, and it's quite a colourful catalogue. And uh, one of those people is, is Nehemiah. And the, the famous part, if you like, of, of Nehemiah is, is Nehemiah the great reformer. Um, he's the guy, one of the, he's probably one of the greatest leaders in the whole of scripture. Um, most of us are aware that uh, God used him to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and give that much needed confidence and security back to God's people when they were pretty demoralized. And he, he, led, a, he led a reformation. It's an amazing thing. He led a reformation, not of bricks and mortar, but of reshaping the people of God. Um, under him, people came back to a, a, a true worship of God. Uh, they began to honour his word again. They began to do sex and money and marriage and gender and power in different ways than the culture around them again. It's a pretty exciting time. And they re- regained their identity and they recommitted themselves to the God of the Covenant. And uh, along with Ezra... Uh, In many ways, they set the foundations of Judaism that was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, Jesus, who would come about 430 years later. So that's probably the well-known bit. The bit about, uh, if you like, before he was famous, the kind of before he was famous bit, is um, the fact that, in the first place, Andy remained so, he actually was a civil servant. Now, what happened to Nehemiah was that he had a, a midlife career change, not a midlife crisis, although he might have had one of those if you actually read what happened. But he had a midlife career change. It's very interesting that. We can have a, a whole topic on that. I think, you know, I think I feel, feel one coming. But uh, it seemed to have lasted a number of years. And I think, as Louise said earlier, his employee the king, gave him a very generous extended leave abroad. It could have been about 12 years, actually, uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, then it does seem that he goes back to his day job after that. Um, But here's the thing. Nehemiah is a a civil servant. He's not a professionally paid Christian worker. He, He never went to Bible college. He wasn't a pastor or an elder. He wasn't a priest. And he wasn't a prophet. Uh, In fact, it's fascinating when you read Nehemiah, uh, the way it's even structured. He he doesn't teach much by inspired words, you know, concepts and principles. More by an embodied example, a lifestyle. He's a practitioner. He's a leader who teaches us through modelling working life. And as you read Nehemiah, it's amazing because you'll notice that a lot of it is really you're reading his personal journal. Uh, he's not only the subject, but he's the author. It's kind of like his memoir. Interesting to see what we'd think of a name for it. It's kind of his autobiography. 
And it's really good because it enables you to kind of get up close and personal with Nehemiah and really understand what it looks like to be a godly worker. So Nehemiah is a a regular bloke and uh, working a regular job. He's an urban civil servant. And this is great because it completely blows apart this sacred-secular divide. Uh, As you know, uh, if you've been coming along for a few weeks, uh, today is in a series of talks about primarily about workplace ministry to encourage each other in our desire to see the whole of our lives as mission, not just the spiritual bits. And it's in recognition, I suppose, that for the majority, majority of us, the main focus of our time in relationships is within the workplace. Regular people doing regular jobs like Nehemiah. And the fact, this great vision, that, that God is at work by his Holy Spirit just as much from Monday to Friday, 8 till 6, 9 till 5, whatever it is, as he is from 10.30 to, depends on how I speak, 12, uh, on a Sunday and in the week, on a weeknight. The whole of life is missional and has inherent value in the kingdom of God. And I just want to read, it's quite a long quote, but I think it's superb, you may have come up, from Mark Green, who's a fantastic guy about the importance of workplace ministry, and I'm just going to read it out. The one place where Christians are not actively engaged to make a difference is the one place where they spend 50, 60 or 70% of their waking hours. The one place where Christians and non-Christians have to meet. The one place where the playing field's even. Where Christian and non-Christian are subject to the same corporate culture, the same pressures. The one place where the non-Christian can actually see the difference that Christ can make to a life. Not a couple of hours over dinner but for 20, 30, 40, 50 hours a week over a couple of years, the workplace. The number of people who even know the basic claims about Jesus is getting fewer and fewer. We need to build bridges to the unchurched. We need to go to the fringe and beyond. We need to learn to speak the language. The response, however, is to send us on the highways and byways to neighbours who are only often marginally interested, to knock on doors, to talk to people who on the whole we don't know very well. Church-based evangelism is often cold contact farm. Meanwhile, back in the workplace, the average Christian has already built bridges and crossed them. They've already developed relationships and already speak their co-workers' language. Warm contacts. We're encouraging people to go out and fish in pools and puddles when they're often sitting on a lake full of fish. Often the people who know us well don't live next door. They work at the next desk. Britain's workplaces are filled with all kinds of people, all kinds of problems. Illness, fear of redundancy, adultery, grief, confusion, purposelessness, promiscuity, ethical conundrums, criminal negligence, racist racist hiring policies, dirty tricks, and so on. Oh, that we would encourage one another to see these as little villages and towns with compassion, understanding, and a heartfelt desire to see us free and fulfilled in Christ. And what a difference they would make to so many Christians to be released into confident ministry right where they are. Nehemiah, Joseph, the Exodus midwives, name of servant girl, Daniel, Esther, Lydia, will have all approved. I'm sure, after all, when it comes to witnessing in a pagan environment, the Bible is very clear, leave it to the workers. Now, just a very quick word on the context of Nehemiah, and then we're going to have a quick little look at him um, ourselves. So, Nehemiah, just to get our bearings, 
is it's the last historical action in the Old Testament. It started in Genesis with the sweep of the creation of the world in Genesis to about 430 BC. And uh, then we're going to have a 400-year interval, and then we're going to start part two with the New Testament. So chronologically, we're at the end of the Old Testament record, and it's really significant because the days of the kings are over, the sun is beginning to set on the prophets, and the question still remains, how are God's people going to remain faithful as they look forward to their coming king? Sounds like it's got quite a bit of relevance to us, doesn't it? So today's sermon is entitled, Nehemiah, the day job and the calling. And we're going to put Nehemiah briefly under the spotlight in his workplace so we can learn a little bit about his character in action. And I've got uh, just three points. The first thing we notice is the trustworthiness of Nehemiah. The trustworthiness of Nehemiah in the place where God has put him. If you look at Nehemiah 2 verse 1, you'll see what his job is. I think you all know what his job is. He's a civil servant, but he's actually a cupbearer to the king. And he must have been a very, very trustworthy man. I mean, in our context, you might think it seems more like a glorified waiter. But in the Persian Empire, it was an extremely important position. The, the cupbearer had not only to taste the wine, he had to buy the wine, he had to vet the wine, he had to order it, and fundamentally, he had to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. Quite a risky job. And in those days, there were enemies everywhere. Conspiracies to knock the king off his throne were very common. And the king would always make sure that the person who ordered and vetted and tasted the wine was someone he was absolutely convinced about, absolutely trusted, He had to have full confidence in this guy. So in a funny way, he's a bit of a right-hand man. The boss had really come to trust him. Just think about this. Nehemiah, he's a foreigner. He was the man he chose. It has to say a great deal about Nehemiah's integrity. And in a secular context and occupation, he proves really faithful and really reliable. Now, that's got to be something that we can learn from. Many of us have to contend with a particular occupation that you have been given, that we've been given. And it's so easy, isn't it, to you know, find ourselves, even like subconsciously, separating our Christian life from our secular existence. So we're at work, we're at college, wherever we are, And we find, we do what we have to do, but we find ourselves looking for the real opportunities for useful work for God outside of those contexts. Whereas what Nehemiah found was that his opportunity to be useful to God arose from being faithful and reliable in the very place, in the very context, in the very job where God had placed him for so many years. You ever thought about that? You see, the trustworthiness of Nehemiah was very important, fundamentally important, in the great opportunity that he was eventually going to be given in the future. Think about it. He never would have had the chance to be useful to God in the way he was if he hadn't been faithful and trustworthy 
in what must have seemed to him, I'm sure, humanly speaking, many times, a situation where no one in their wildest dreams could possibly imagine or expect that it would have any kind of lasting spiritual impact or effect. And it's very easy to feel like that, isn't it? How about you? Do you, do you feel, how do you feel about the situation, your workplace you're in at the moment? Sometimes you feel, you know, what difference am I making? It's hopeless. Sometimes, is it even worth keeping my integrity? It's so difficult. Being different, what's the point? Nevertheless, take great heart, take great encouragement, take great note that it was the very faithfulness of Nehemiah in that very situation which was the thing that God initially used to further his plans. His integrity was foundational to this future assignment God was going to open up. So Nehemiah did not compartmentalise his faith. He didn't see his job as a hindrance or an obstacle to doing ministry and what God had called him to do. Rather, he saw it was the way that God was working it out for him. And there's a fantastic need to constantly encourage each other to accept and affirm our own daily ministries and missions that wherever God has called us to work. There's the story of a mother who complained to uh, C.H. Spurgeon. She wanted to be a preacher but she had seven children, and um, Spurgeon replied, congratulations to you, God has given you a congregation. <laughs> and I remember in the, in the 90s, in the rebuilding of Eastern Europe, post-communist nations, governments starting to look for Christian workers for their employment, because they're the ones who didn't steal. They're the ones who worked hard. Christian became synonymous with trustworthiness, and they were invited to help rebuild the nation with some friends from Hungary. And it is phenomenal, the open doors that Christians are given because of this very value. So first then, we see the trustworthiness of Nehemiah in the place that God had put him. Secondly, let's notice the concern of Nehemiah and the extent and subject of his passionate concern. Nehemiah's passionate concern, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, But I said to the king... May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city of my ancestors are buried? Sorry, the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, of course, you have to go back to chapter 1 to discover the origin of these events that started off this reaction in Nehemiah. And so let's just read a few verses in uh, chapter 1. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burnt with fire. And here's what Nehemiah says. And when I heard these things, I, some versions say, I broke down. So you did have a breakdown. I sat down and I wept. You notice something very interesting, very different here. Something almost revolutionary about Nehemiah's concern. It's very likely that he's never been to Jerusalem before. It's very likely he hasn't met any of the people. There's hundreds and hundreds of miles away. But Nehemiah, I suspect, is a little bit different to maybe you and me. He just wasn't thinking about himself and his own personal workplace, his own situation, his own relationship with God. No, he felt a strong, passionate solidarity 
with the fortunes of God's people, wherever they might be, and with God's cause on the planet. God's name was at stake. It's very easy to be a bit like the... Have you seen the British gas adverts? Like in our own little worlds? Have you seen that one? I can't stand that. It's just a appalling image. But everyone's in their own little world, aren't they? We live in our own worlds, concerned with our concerns, but he didn't get lost in the cares and concerns of the world. When Han and I arrived, Nehemiah wanted information. To a completely different situation, he, he identified with the suffering. And this is fascinating. God's redemptive story starts to break into his workplace. Because integrity in the workplace, which is my first point, is not enough. We talk about integrity a lot in the workplace. But being a Christian is not just about avoiding evil and watching PG films and having nice children. It is about a passion for God's purpose on the planet. And although he took his faith into his workplace with integrity, the workplace is going to be increasingly affected by his faith. That's amazing. Things are never going to quite be the same as this burden grows. There's a merging of the spheres, the sacred and the secular. They're beginning to disappear. It's incredible. Sometimes Christians can live with integrity, but basically they're using Christian means for worldly ends. They still want the same things as the world, but they're doing it in a Christian way. Not so of Nehemiah. He is burdened in his workplace, for God's cause on planet Earth. Chapter 2, verse 2. His heart was filled. You see that there? He says, with sadness. His heart was filled with sadness. He sat down, he broke down, he wept. He's absolutely broken, he's devastated, he's deeply moved. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? When was the last time, me, you, when were we last moved to tears? Or deeply affected by the state? Of God's people. One of the really interesting things about this is the report of the news of what happened in Jerusalem. I'm going to take a little risk. We're going to have a bit of feedback here. Someone can shout out. Does anyone know how long ago these events happened? Because it sounds like the news was like last week, doesn't it? Does anyone know how long ago it was? About, about. No, no, no that, that, that's a ridiculous, I'm sorry, that is, that's ridiculous, but anyway. Uh, it was 141 years. You know when the, the Babylonians in 586 come in and destroyed it, and now we're in about 445. 140 years before. Now, when you look at some of the commentators about this, some of them state the obvious, and they actually try and change the dates of Nehemiah. One said, it seems late. Yes, that's true, yes. Others say, well, he couldn't have just been told the walls were destroyed because it doesn't account for his emotional devastation. He must not have got some new news. But the news had been around for 141 years. I was trying to think what, uh, what happened 141 years ago, as if I came out to you today and said, hey, guess what's happened? But I, I, went, I went on Wikipedia and I went and put the years in, but just, nothing seems to be happening in, in the United Kingdom at that time. But it was the American Civil War, and Charles Dickens did bring a book out. Okay, that's the kind of time we're talking about. A few years later, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. How about that? Abraham Lincoln's been assassinated. How's everybody feeling? Yeah. So what's going on? Why the weeping? Why the praying? Why the fasting? Why the mourning? 
Not new information, but a new perspective. I think God the Holy Spirit opened up Nehemiah's heart to weep over Jerusalem. Do you remember anyone else that's done that? It's even the Spirit of Christ in him, weeping over Jerusalem. You know, it's very easy to become comfortable and lose sight of the need. Do you know the city that we're living in here is probably no less spiritually bankrupt, destroyed and confused than the Jerusalem was of that day? Generations, it's been like that. I know it's 141 years, but certainly generations. Maybe we need news today about the spiritual condition of our society. We get used to it, but it broke him. And sometimes it doesn't bother us that 100 churches are closing every year in this country. 80% of churches are plateauing, declining. Half of Europe's countries have less than 1% evangelical. Muslims already outnumber the Christians in the Church of England. More people were probably in St Mary's Stadium yesterday at the football match than Christians in the whole city. And if Southampton's going to be a great city, Jesus has got to be introduced to the city, into every workplace, into every school, into every home. Does it bother us that he's not? How many of us get Nehemiah's tears? Yes, sometimes we might feel pangs of sympathy, but it can be momentary. But here Nehemiah is a man with a passionate concern, and he devoured the information about the state of God's world around him. He saw himself as part of God's story on planet Earth. Whatever his occupation, whatever his job, he was aware of the promises of God, and as we know, he becomes a major player in God's redemptive plan to prepare even the coming of Christ into the world. So, firstly, the trustworthiness of Nehemiah in the place he'd been put. Secondly, the passionate concern Nehemiah felt for God's people. And lastly, you'll notice this incredible combination of prayer and practical action. It's a very practical response. A very prayerful and yet practical response. On hearing the news and deciding that something needs to be done, it's so striking what he didn't do. He didn't shrug his shoulders and try and pretend to forget about it and act as if nothing had happened. He didn't try and pass the buck on to others. Notice the singular pronouns in the chapter. I fasted. I prayed. I mourned. I said to the king. It's so interesting, isn't it, that he didn't sit back. He didn't call the people of God together for a national day of prayer. He didn't rely on the religious professionals to get the ball rolling. He was so deeply and personally agonised and affected that he got on and started doing something. Starting where? In his own workplace. That's a challenge, isn't it? And it's no surprise his actions begin with prayer. Absolutely brilliant. For three months, if you look at the dates, I'm sure you're aware of this, it seems like he's praying for three months. You look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says it was the month of Nisan. If you look at the beginning, it says it was in Kislev. If you get your old Hebrew calendar out, you'll find it's about three to four months. So each day, as he went to work, for three or four months, he'd been praying, Lord, let it be today. You see the burden of Jerusalem's disgrace. You see the state of God's people in the world. It's almost become an obsession for him. He couldn't let go of it. He wrestled in prayer, he persevered, and for three whole months, he waited for an answer. And then he gets 
his answer, doesn't he? Nehemiah 2.5. When he answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so I can rebuild it. In a very practical way, he's asking for time off from the boss. Also, you notice incredible preparation. I won't read Nehemiah 2, 7-9, but you see the incredible preparation. He's not just been praying, he's not just been watching, he's also been thinking. And some people give the impression, don't they, that organisation and planning and preparation are somehow unspiritual. You ever come across that? Well, if that's true, then God himself is unspiritual. Because he's shown in the scriptures as a planner. He makes preparation. He has a purpose and a will. I'd like to suggest it's almost the other way around. The practical response of Nehemiah began with prayer. It took thinking. It took preparation. And the last thing it took is courage. It took stacks of courage. That's what Louise was talking about earlier. Verse, chapter 2, verse 2. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. On the face of it, it seems a bit strange. But clearly, it doesn't take a lot to realise that this is a very, very dangerous situation. Artaxerxes was an absolute dictator. This look of sadness could have been misinterpreted. It could have been not only a sacking offence, but he could have been the end of Nehemiah's life. He could have suspected, or there was some coup, some plot, some conspiracy, because of Nehemiah's out-of-place behaviour. And Artaxerxes doesn't seem the kind of ruler that paused to ask a lot of questions. So it was a dangerous action, it was a risky action to be spoken to by the king. It would have been much more sensible, here's a very British word for you, much more appropriate, in the context of the workplace, to keep quiet, to keep your head down, to do your job, not to draw attention to yourself, definitely not to start bringing your kingdom concerns into the workplace. And that's so often our attitude, isn't it? Attitude of so many Christians. Isn't it true we just sigh and we do nothing? But that wasn't the attitude of Nehemiah, was it? He trembled before his boss, but then he said, may the king live forever. That's a good start. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? This is a risk. When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Yes, he trembles before a corrupt system. A system where it's not appropriate to bring your faith to work and your work to your faith. He trembled. But he served passionately and sacrificially the purposes of God. He was prepared to take risks for the cause of Christ. He took a step of faith and had no idea of the outcomes. You know, that's a step of faith when you don't know the outcomes. If you know all the outcomes, that's not faith. That's just called being a control freak. A step of faith, you won't know the outcomes. He put his neck on the line for God's cause. He prayed, he prepared, but also he acted. Right there in the context of his workplace. And he was prepared to be the means by which his prayers were answered. I answered the king, if it pleases the king, send me to the city where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Not for Nehemiah, here I am Lord, send him. Send me. He asked for time off for mission. There's a challenge. I haven't got time. 
Three really interesting thoughts that help us learn about what it looks like to be godly in the workplace. The trustworthiness of Nehemiah. The passionate concern for God's cause and kingdom in the workplace of Nehemiah. The practical response of him, of Nehemiah. And we see Nehemiah mightily used by God to rebuild Jerusalem and then eventually re-establish God's covenant. But it all started before he was famous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that Nehemiah is to us. Lord, give us the same integrity, the same heart, the same passion, both for the honour of your name and the fortunes of your people in the world. Lord, forgive us for the times that we've let you down. When we've done what we should not have done and when we failed to do what we should have done. Lord, open our eyes to see both ourselves and the spiritual state of this world as you do. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us the mind and the heart and the eyes of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.